Welcome back to the program. Few nations have as long a history of uninterrupted conflict and misunderstanding as the United States and Iran. The markers along the road are tall. The U.S. coup that installed the Shah, the hostage crisis, Kobar Towers, Lebanon, Holocaust denial, and continuously failed efforts to seize opportunities have all contributed to the poisoning of that relationship. The issue of U.S.-Iranian relations has run through the center of American foreign policy for over 60 years, through 10 successive administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike. Yet with each successive effort or treatment, the disease always threatens to burst out and become full-blown. This is where we are once again in nuclear talks in Vienna, and in the efforts to stabilize Iraq and Syria. Are we at a new critical juncture in this relationship, or is it all just another failed effort at rapprochement? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, distinguished Iranian diplomat Saeed Hussan Musavian. He's an associate research scholar at the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton. He's a former diplomat who served as General Director of Europe and Iran's Foreign Ministry, ambassador to Germany, head of the Foreign Relations Committee of Iran's National Security Council, and as a spokesman for Iran in its nuclear negotiations with the European Union. It is my pleasure to welcome Ambassador Saeed Hussan Musavian to the program to talk about his new book, Iran and the United States, an insider's view on the failed past and the road to peace. Ambassador Musavian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. As we look at that failed past, as you referred to in the title, it does make you think that in these conversations that are ongoing now, the nuclear talks in Vienna and any effort to to work together in stabilizing Iraq and Syria, that we're back to the same missed opportunities that we've seen in the past. Is there any reason to think this time anything is different? I think this time is different because uh, to my understanding, this is the first time <clears throat> the U.S. has uh, engaged in a very serious dialogue with Iran. Uh, we have never seen such a bilateral, high-level, serious, deep dialogue between Iran and the U.S. Uh, they, are, they are negotiating between foreign ministers. This is really unique. We have never had such a, such a chance during the last 35 years. The deputy ministers, they are sitting together in Vienna during the last uh, 10 days, perhaps uh, over 20, 30 hours they have discussed bilaterally. That's why uh, I believe uh, this time could be different and hopefully we would be able to reach to a peaceful solution to Iranian nuclear issue. I have discussed in my book what really can be the basis the framework for a face-saving solution on the nuclear. To what extent does the ongoing situation in the Middle East now, the situation in Iraq, the situation in Syria, and the overlay of that, to what extent does that impact, do you think, the talks that are going on in Vienna? Very frankly speaking, uh, there is a great impact because uh, we have uh, crisis in Syria, actually Syria and Iraq, they are at both at the verge of collapse as a nation and as a, as a state, both. Terrorism, now the, 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 the Syria and Iraq is a heaven for the most dangerous of terrorism the history of mankind has ever experienced. 
the, the, the Daesh, the, the ISIS or Salafist extremists. And Afghanistan is in very serious domestic turmoil. Uh, the peace process is failed. And uh, I think the U.S. and even the Europeans now, they understand that terrorism arising from Middle East is going to be very soon their first national security threat. And if you look at to the Middle East today, very, very uh, fairly speaking about the, the countries, many countries more uh, the allied of the U.S., either they are in domestic turmoil like, like Egypt, like uh, uh, Tunisia, or they are vulnerable to the, the current uh, wave of Arab Spring, like the countries around the Persian Gulf, uh, the Arab countries, the two stable countries in the region uh, still are Iran and Turkey. The others are either they, ha they have extremely difficult domestic situation or a chaos like Iraq or Syria, or they are very vulnerable to the current situation. Therefore, uh, it's a time for Iran and the U.S. to engage more broadly not only on the nuclear. Our differences does not limit to nuclear. We need to sit together to have a broader dialogue on a comprehensive package, bilateral issues, regional issues, and international issues. The U.S. is the, the, the major international player in the region. Iran is the major regional player. And once, uh, Hen as, as once Henry Kissinger said, you can rarely find two countries like Iran and the U.S. with so common interests. And unfortunately, we have missed the common interests for over three decades. I believe now is the time. You talk about the stability in Iran. Does the Green Revolution and all the things that have come since, does that in some way belie that argument about the stability of Iran? Uh, see, uh, during last 30 years, we have had always the domestic power struggle within the Iranian system. Believe it or not, this is part of a real democracy. Uh, I mean, if there is election, if there is criticism, the people, they can come to the street, they can demonstrate, they can protest. But... Uh, the, our domestic situation is very much similar to the Washington domestic situation. You have Republicans and you have uh, Democrats. You see how Republicans uh, in the Congress, they are, uh, they are trying to do everything to undermine President Obama's policy on engagement with Iran. They do everything to blockade. They have the same situation in Iran. I mean, the opposition is really powerful. They have a powerful hand in parliament. They have powerful hand in media. They have powerful hand in, in, in the public. That's why the, we, we should not consider uh, this as uh, a factor of instability. Uh, this is really a factor of stability. When you have different voices, chance they have chance to talk, to write, to demonstrate, to have an impact. One of the things that we've seen in the history of this relationship is when there have been potential openings in the relationship on one side or the other, 
that these openings never seemed to happen at the same time. We could go through the long history of them, and there were situations where, where moderates made some moves inside of Iran or moderates made some moves in the U.S., and it never all seemed to mesh at the same time. Is there any reason to think that this time there is a greater possibility for everybody to be on the same page? I, I, I fully agree with you, and uh, I have explained in detail in my book about the misopportunities during the last 30 years. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, numerous overtures, uh, Iranians and sometimes Americans, they have made, and every time we failed. But I believe this time the, the situation is a little bit different. One, the reason is because the two leaders in Tehran and Washington, uh, to my understanding, they are really serious to resolve the nuclear uh, crisis. Uh, peacefully to prevent a third war in the Middle East. This is one. Second, Iranians are ready for the maximum level of transparency internationally exists on their nuclear program. I mean, if you go to international norms and regulations, we have non-proliferation treaty, NPT. And within non-proliferation treaty, we have three arrangements not more, is, is safeguard agreement, is additional protocol, and the third one called subsidiary arrangement code 3.1. If a country admits all these three protocols, this country would be the, 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 the most transparent nation on the nuclear activities. Today, on nuclear talks in Vienna, Iran is ready to, to, to agree to all these three. This is a big issue. This is a big difference. And second, um, uh, on the nuclear talks, even Iranians are ready to accept for a period of confidence building as voluntary measures, some confidence building measures beyond non-proliferation treaty, like capping the enrichment level below 5%. You know, by NPT, you can enrich to up to 90, 95%, 100%. There is no limit. Iranians are ready to cap their enrichment below 5%. Or they are ready to be committed to have limited stockpile. Or they are ready to, to, they are ready to be committed to have no pr uh, reprocessing uh, 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 of, of the nuclear uh, material. These are really something unique and that's why I believe the U.S. should not walk away simply from uh, uh, the negotiation table because on one hand, uh, Obama's administration has all promises, signature of Iran to the, the, the maximum level of transparency uh, at, uh, at the highest level of international protocols. And at the other hand, Iranians are also ready for five years, ten years, something like this, to give some more uh, uh, confession uh, on uh, some measures beyond uh, uh, nuclear proliferation treaty. And the last one, I believe, is the situation in the region. The region is on the fire. And Iran and the U.S., they really feel a big commitment today to uh, end their hostilities and to save the Middle East from collapsing. 
How much have sanctions, though, played a role in bringing Iran to where it is today in these talks? It's a really good question because whenever, whenever I go in the U.S., there is a perception, conventional wisdom is that this is the sanctions uh, which brought Iran to the negotiation table. I have explained in details in my book, uh, lengthy, uh, that this is really a, a wrong perception. This is one of the misperceptions. Look, the sanctions really had huge impact harming Iranian economy. No doubt about it. But what was the impact of sanctions on the nuclear issue? The objective of the U.S. and international community, the United Nations Security Council, was to impose sanctions in order to limit or to stop Iranian nuclear program. Okay. Now, before sanctions, Iran had a few hundreds of operational centrifuges. After sanctions today, they have 20,000 centrifuges, which about 10,000 is operational. Before sanctions, Iran was enriching below 5%, low enrichment. After sanctions, Iran enriched to 20%. Before sanctions, Iran had a few hundred kilograms of stockpile of enrichment, uranium. After sanctions, now Iran has about 10,000 kilograms of stockpile of uranium enrichment. Actually, sanctions pushed Iran to increase and to develop its nuclear program in order to show to international community that they would not raise their hand on their pressures and sanctions. However, the deal was signed in November uh, 2013, the interim deal mm -hmm. in Geneva. If you compare the deal with the proposal we made in 2005, when I was member of negotiation team, I was the spokesperson of the nuclear negotiation team during President Khatami. In March 2005, when we were negotiating with EU3, Germany, France, and United Kingdom, when the file was not referred to United Nations Security Council, when there was no sanction, the proposal we made in 2005 is exactly like the proposal they agreed in November 2013. This is exactly the same proposal. The reason they agreed, it was not because the sanction because of the sanctions. The reason they agreed was because the U.S. position changed. In 2005, we couldn't agree with Europeans on the proposal we made because the U.S. position was zero enrichment in Iran. The, the Americans, they were telling the Europeans, no single centrifuge in Iran. Okay, they, uh, that, that's why we failed. In 2013, they signed the same framework, the same content, the same proposal, because the U.S. The, uh, position was changed. They, the U.S. said, okay, we are ready to accept enrichment in Iran, but we need intrusive inspections. Iranians always they have been ready. And now they are talking about the limits. I mean, today the negotiation is not about enrichment in Iran. It's about the limits. Uh, some limitation on the enrichment. That's why 
I believe uh, this is one of the big misperceptions on the sanction issue. Except that on, on the Iranian side, the length of time before sanctions are lifted does seem to be a fundamental issue. There was originally talk of 20 years and 10 years and some phasing out of the sanctions. That seems to be a real sticking point as far as the you know, is concerned. You know, I, I, I really, not because I'm Iranian. I really believe the Iranians are right because Iranians, they say, look, guys, if you are really serious, we can do everything in one year, whatever you want whatever we want. And how this, this deal would uh, include a comprehensive package to be implemented step by step. Iranians, they say, when you are talking about 20 years, many different administrations are coming, many different parliament, congress, and everything can easily be changed. But if you are really serious, we can do everything, finish everything before Obama's departure. And that's why I really like this, this type of uh, 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 position, because this would really fix the deal, and this would prevent the risk in the future. You know, when we are talking about implementation of a proposal for 20 years, and no one knows who would win election in, in, in the U.S., uh, a congressional, uh, congressional election. No one knows who would win the uh, presidential election and what would be the, the, the next U.S. Uh, administration position and what's going to happen in Tehran. This is one of the issues, you are right, Iranians are ready to implement the comprehensive deal within a short time, but the, the, the U.S. is unfortunately is resisting, is reiterating for a longer period. You talk about the the region being on fire and the the dangers that are in the region, certainly that we read about every day and that we all know about. And yet there was another failed opportunity right after 9-11 when there seemed to be cooperation between the U.S. and Iran with respect to Afghanistan, the talks with Ambassador Ryan Crocker at the time, and we saw how that fell apart. Talk a little bit about that in the context of what we're seeing today. Um, uh, it is very interesting. We have also another interesting event uh, during uh, uh, 1980s. It was 1988, 1999, when we had uh, U.S. and other Western hostages in Lebanon. And uh, the U.S. president sent an, a message for Iranian president, invited the Iranian president uh, uh, for goodwill against goodwill. That time I was in foreign ministry, Rafsanjani was the president, and he asked me and another colleague to follow this project to realize the U.S. will on goodwill for goodwill. And he instructed all related institutions in the country to cooperate with us to manage the release of, to facilitate the release of American hostages and other Western hostages in Lebanon. And because the Rafsanjani trusted the, the then president of the U.S. was the, the Bush father, and he really wanted to end hostilities in the first decade of revolution. It was 1988-1989. And uh, everyone knows that Iran uh, fulfilled its commitment within some months. All Western hostages, they were released. But right after the hostages, they were released, 
the U.S. not only did not show any goodwill, increased the pressures and sanctions on Iran. This was really a big, big misopportunity because goodwill for goodwill was really a good framework to resolve hostilities. Iranians, they proved they are ready, and Americans, they failed. Now we go to the, the, the event which you mentioned during President Khatami. At that time, I was the head of Foreign Relations Committee of National Security Council of Iran. And I was uh, heavily involved in this issue. Americans, they invited us for, all, uh, for war on terror. And although the Iranian leader was pessimistic about this invitation, and he, he, he believed that Americans are not uh, sincere and they are going to deceive Iranians, but the Khatami administration... Uh, we in the National Security Council decided to cooperate uh, uh, to fight against Al-Qaeda at Taliban in Afghanistan. It was after, after September 11 uh, terrorist attack on Twin Towers in New York. And right the time, uh, this is the time when you mentioned uh, yeah, uh, Ambassador Crocker was involved. Iranians, they were really cooperative. Uh, the security forces of Iran, they were cooperating with American security and military forces in Afghanistan. They, they could win Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda. Iranian assistance could pave the way for the American army to enter Kabul. And then Iranian cooperated with the U.S. to bring not a Shia president, a Sunni president, uh, Karzai, but after all these goodwills and cooperations, suddenly, just some weeks after such a big overtures, uh, unfortunately, President Bush uh, uh, named, uh, rewarded Iran uh, as axis of evil. And this was, this was uh, another uh, big misopportunity, a failure on the U.S. side. And, of course, Iran responded by releasing one of the most dangerous Afghan warlords from prison at the time. I mean, when, when Iranians they, they, uh, are confronted with uh, such a negative behavior, therefore they, they believe the U.S. is not ready for good relations, the U.S. is not ready for ending the hostility, the, 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 the U.S. does not want original cooperation, and the U.S. wants to uh, isolate Iran in the region because the U.S. position after all these cooperations in Afghanistan was uh, Iran to leave Afghanistan, uh, fighting Iranian interests in Afghanistan. Therefore, you, you normally you should expect uh, such a reactions from Iranians. There was also, in between the two incidents that you mentioned, there was the, the other situation shortly after Kobar Towers in the second term of the Clinton administration where the administration thought it was underreacting to, to Kobar Towers in the effort to perhaps create some kind of opening that was met with, with resistance by Iran at the time. You are right. I, I think the uh, Kobar uh, uh, issue also was another big mistake or another misopportunity because we had a decade of hostility between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, President Afsanjani gave me a mandate to sit with uh, uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Amir Abdullah, now is the king. I went to Jeddah, uh, to Saudi Arabia, 
and I had uh, three, four rounds of talks from 11 o'clock at night until 5 o'clock in the morning. And we agreed to revive Iran-Saudi relations. We agreed on a comprehensive package, cultural relations, economic relations, security relations. Everything was agreed. And exactly the time we agreed such a comprehensive package to revive the relation with Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> then Hobar happened. Definitely it was Al-Qaeda move to prevent Iran-Saudi Arabia revival uh, and cordial relations. But uh, it was uh, the time uh, uh, President Khatami was elected at the beginning of President Khatami's uh, tenure, and the U.S. was emphasizing uh, Khobar, Iran has been involved in Khobar, while Iran had no interest. The time is uh, reviving the relation with Saudi Arabia to go in the same time to do some terrorist attack inside Saudi Arabia. I mean, this could have been ridiculous. And it took three, four years until the U.S. recognized, yes, Iran has not been involved, and it has been Al-Qaeda and those terrorist groups within Saudi Arabia. However, it took the first 10 years of President Khatami because then President Khatami could not follow his uh, policies for a good relation with the U.S. because the U.S. blockaded uh, rapprochement uh, because of Khobar issue. One of the issues, of course, we haven't touched on that, that is really part of so much of this discussion and part of really what the outcome might be to the current talks is the issue of Israel and Iran's position with respect to Israel. Talk a little bit about that, Mr. Investor. Uh, I have explained uh, again these uh, root causes of Iranian position toward Israel and Israeli-Iranian hostilities. Uh, I have tried to explain uh, what are the root causes. However, uh, first of all, uh, in the U.S., everywhere I go, they are asking me uh, why Iran does not recognize Israel. This is the first question I am confronted with. And I'm really surprised to hear everybody is thinking the main issue is because Iran is not recognizing Israel. Uh, uh, the reason is that we have 57 countries, Muslim countries, and over 50 countries, they do not recognize Israel. The, the most strategic allies of the U.S., like Saudi Arabia, does not recognize Israel. While Saudi Arabia and other GCC members and other U.S. allies in the region, they do not recognize Israel. The U.S. has good relations with them and selling them the most sophisticated uh, conventional arms. Therefore, this really cannot be an issue and uh, an obstacle because uh, it is not Iran. It is 90% of Muslim countries in the world, they do not recognize Israel. But, However, there, but there is a difference between recognition on the one hand, diplomatic recognition, and, and, and recognition in talks, and then the idea of those that argue against Israel's right to exist. No, uh, I, I was coming uh, to, to, to this point exactly. I agree with you. I mean, uh, Iranians, they, they believe uh, the major force behind U.S. coercive policies against Iran in the U.S. is uh, uh, the lobbies like APAC, Israeli lobbies. And this, uh, the, the reason of uh, sanctions 
30 years of uh, different uh, legislations, uh, sanctioned legislations by, by Congress. Iranians, they believe that the main force is Israeli lobby. And uh, Israelis, they have pushing the U.S. to attack Iran. Therefore, they believe Israel is the main reason of all options on the table, uh, that the U.S. policy of all options on the table, it means the U.S. may attack Iran. That's why Iranians also, they, uh, they, they try to reciprocate the Israeli hostilities against Iran, uh, which causes practically the U.S. hostilities, and then international pressures, sanctions are coming after the U.S. policies. Uh, they, they are going also to reciprocate in the region. That's why one of the arguments I make in my, in my, in my book is that the way to uh, resolve these uh, very high-level hostilities between Iran and, uh, and, and Israel is a rapprochement between Iran and the U.S. To my understanding, if there is a good relation between Iran and the U.S., then the hostilities would decrease dramatically between Iran and Israel because there would not be any more sanctions, pressures from the U.S. side. Therefore, Iranians, they would, uh, to my understanding, they would mod modify their position and they would become like other members of uh, Muslim countries, organization of Islamic countries, which we have 57 countries. This organization has a clear position on Israel and Arab-Israeli peace process, then Iranian position would be in line uh, to that organization. And finally, what is the significance or value or importance of the Iranian diaspora in the United States? And can that be a part of, or should it be a part of this discussion? Of course, you know, we have uh, a big Iranian community in the U.S. Someone says this is one million or two million Iranians, and they, they are really intellectual community and with huge assets uh, in academic world, in economic, industrial uh, activities. Uh, that's why uh, this is, uh, or this should be definitely one of the big capitals uh, to be utilized by Iran and the U.S on a better relation, because Americans, we have hundreds of thousands of Iranian Americans, and Iranian government can use them for a better relation, and American government also can use them for a better relation. Therefore, uh, 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 you remember before revolution, I have explained in my book uh, that uh, we had uh, over 50,000 Iranian students coming to U.S. annually. And uh, why not uh, 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 this, this, this trend of cooperation, why, why cannot be uh, revived? In my uh, book, at the end of the book, Roadmap, I have proposed civilian diplomacy, people-to-people's relations. A big part of people's to people's relation could be Iranian American community. However, we we have a lot of uh, options for art cooperation on art field, music, on cultural affairs, academic tourism, uh, on healthcare affairs, 
and uh, many, many other humanitarian dimension of uh, people's to people's relations. Ambassador Saeed Hussan Musavian, his book is Iran and the United States, an insider's view of the failed past and the road to peace. Mr. Ambassador, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. We'll take a break. Bye. I'll be right back.